One of the key things I think people should think about and keep in mind is that uh, with, with Excel or with a lot of these visualization tools, people are trying to get to a chart or final chart so they can put it in their PowerPoint, and it's very static. To me, the power of these tools is that it's really a 4D approach, if you think about it, where the fourth dimension is time. It's a very live approach, and so I would encourage people to really think that way. My name is Kashif, and this is BioRadio. A group of biologists turned bioinformaticians bring you into the world of research and development informatics by interviewing the people responsible for implementing systems and technologies to a unique and diverse set of use cases. In the modern age of drug discovery, finding and validating novel targets and biomarkers are more nuanced than ever, requiring multi-omic experiments. Common integration tools are not purpose-built to meet lab-specific challenges, including joining disparate data sets associated metadata, and the ability to natively visualize data. In addition to discussing the necessity of integration, we'll discuss how to share and disseminate this information visually. We'll also highlight some of the options and techniques currently available in the market. Today we're here with Shane Brubaker. Hi, I'm Shane Brubaker. I've been in the field of bioinformatics for about 20 years now, working in industry in genomics and synthetic biology. And I have a lifelong interest in interdisciplinary science, in particular in data integration and visualization. I guess just to get things started, could you walk us through this challenge of integrating data? Is this something new or is this something that's been around for a while? Yeah, so this is not new, but with increasing amounts of data being produced, a lot of these technologies that are doing multi-omics, such as proteomics, RNA-seq, are becoming cheaper and cheaper. So it's becoming more prevalent. Uh, there are more service providers, more companies exploring using this kind of data. And so the number and types of data are increasing. And so the challenge of integrating that together and really getting value of it is more prevalent than ever. There's a convergence of uh, our understanding scientifically, the complexity of the diseases. We're able to create you know, sequencing data at, at different levels, look at methylation data, start pulling those together. Uh, let's switch gears and talk about the, the tech side of it, right? What are the tools that people have traditionally used to join those disparate data sets? Yes. Yeah, so uh, a lot of what happens in typical settings is people are joining these through um, Excel or tools like Jump or things like that. They have files and they're trying to get it together for their particular experiment. A lot of what I focus on is building larger, more centralized systems, such as relational databases, that bring together and aggregate a lot of different data sets. Uh, from the evolution standpoint, we, we've gone from maybe Excel, that is probably the most widely used bioinformatics tool, uh, to probably something in between where people are using R and Python uh, to, to get kind of uh, hands-on and, and interact with the data. Um, how, is, how have you seen that progression to more commercial tools? That's right. So we have, you typically in a lot of industry settings, you have both going on. There are a lot of people doing the Python or R and doing some of their own individual work, and we encourage that. And then you often have large technology teams that are building centralized databases and consuming that data. And I think that's very important because... The, the individual file approach is useful for people trying to solve their one problem or their one experiment. But what right. we found is there's tremendous value in having access to bigger data sets, being able to go back historically, uh, letting your colleagues or teams of bioinformaticians or data scientists also have access to that data. And then importantly, what we're finding is that 
bringing together these large data sets enable the data science teams to do machine learning on that data. And even when these are often thought of as very disparate data sets that you may not think go together, a lot of power can come out of analyzing that data and can lead to new insights. So just diving into the relational database part a bit. So with, with relational databases, one of the things I do know about, about those is that you have to decide the schema in advance. Um, how does that compare? What are the key advantages from your perspective on going with a relational database versus something that's schemaless? Uh, I'm thinking things like uh, either Semantic or, or Hadoop, where you don't have to predefine your structure uh, or schema. Um, you know, I think both approaches can be good. Uh, my experience is that giving thought to the schema in advance can be valuable, and uh, relational database schemas can be pretty flexible. Uh, you can make tables that are key value pairs and things like that to get around situations where you don't know all the metadata in advance. Um, but I think putting some thought into in advance into what the structure will look like uh, really forces some system around what you're doing. And you can then add some of this flexibility for other metadata types. Um, and I, I like that approach. Sure. And so taking a step back, looking at Excel, Python, some of the less robust database tools, um, or, or at least how people utilize those, how are they capturing the metadata? Uh, it's typically one of the biggest problems. Uh, a lot of times metadata simply isn't captured. Uh, it's a big area for me is to make sure that people capture the rationale of their experiment even. And so metadata capture is, is a constant issue for us. And a lot of times people think, well, we've, we didn't need that particular parameter. Um, Part of it is also doing the experiment the correct way and planning is a big issue. So, And I guess when we're talking about large data sets, um, how do you deal with incomplete or dirty data? Uh, it, is, it is surprising how much you can get out of data sets that are not necessarily of the highest quality of sequencing or that not all metadata is present. Uh, sometimes you can simply categorize things based on a strain name and say, we know these strains are low performers and these are high performers or things like that. A lot of times you just go try to track people down and track down other information in other systems and try to make it more complete. And that's why preferably capturing things up front with a good, well-defined system is ideal. We've spoken a bit about um, the integration of multi-omic data. Uh, how does this differ when you're looking at it from the perspective of manufacturing or production of, of reagents, chemicals, biologics, uh, kind of on the industrial scale-up side of things? What are the types of data that you're capturing there uh, within biopharma production, for instance, uh, and, and how are they dealing with the challenges? Are there any differences there? Mm. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of these same principles uh, still apply, but you're capturing different kinds of data, such as uh, plate-based data. You're capturing a lot of things about time spent on an automation device or robotics. Uh, so there's a lot of process and QC tracking that goes into this. You want to know how long plates have been sitting around. Uh, you're tracking which protocols are used on robotics and things like that. Um, so you're tracking test data, but we can apply a lot of the same concepts of how to visualize or, or, or store that data and also uh, use machine learning on things like that to improve processes. And, and that was actually a great lead into the next side of this. So now that you have your data together, you've brought it together using, I would imagine, SQL joins and start integrating the data in, in your relational databases. How, how have people traditionally visualized these data? Um, 
I know at a really small scale, you know, Excel is great at pie charts and line graphs, but what are the intermediary steps between something like R to do visualization to some of the commercial tools for purpose built for visualization? I'm thinking things like Spotfire, Tableau, uh, and and the like. Right. So, yes. Yeah, so I found that it's quite common that one of the first steps people take when they have their data in the database is to get it back out in Excel, uh, which is fine to a certain extent. Uh, but I try to make Excel be more of an endpoint. What you don't want is people doing further analysis in there. I like to build the analysis into tools, like you mentioned, such as Spotfire and Tableau. So what we typically do with these visualization tools is you can build them directly on top of the database. So they have a direct database connection, which means that data is always live. Whatever has gone into the database from the data capture systems is there. And you can have menu come up with all of the different data sets and their rationale and the information about them and the metadata and pull out what data you want. And that's great for an end user like a scientist. They may just want to pull out their latest data set. But for someone who is in bioinformatics or data science, they may want to actually pull in many data sets at once into a much bigger visual visualization. So we then build these uh, visualizations or dashboards on top of this database directly. And it, it's going to automatically pre-populate all sorts of different tabs of different charts that someone has thought about. Uh, so bar graphs, scatter plots, things like that. You can even build in some analysis tools into it. Sure. So standardization of the process the analysis side of that. If you're dumping data from a database into Excel, you have no insight in terms of how a person's actually performing the, the, the analysis. Uh, the second side of that is having live data, uh, just making sure that it's up to date, most complete. As data are flowing in, you have live um, updates to your dashboards. Are there other, are there other key advantages for these purpose-built types of visualization tools? One of the key things I think people should think about and keep in mind is that uh, with, with Excel or with a lot of these visualization tools, people are trying to get to a chart or final chart so they can put it in their PowerPoint. And it's very static. Or a publication. Right. And to me, the power of these tools is that it's really a 4D approach, if you think about it, where the fourth dimension is time. When I'm in these tools looking at my data, I'm not just making a final chart. I'm actually constantly manipulating the filtering panel to change the parameters I'm looking at. I'm kind of rotating around or looking at different things or, or connecting to a different piece of data. So it's a very live approach. And so I would encourage people to really think that way. Even when I give a presentation, I want to give people a link to that live dashboard so they can go back afterwards and, and play around with the data. So the real time actionable insight is is definitely a key differentiator. Uh, I'm assuming that's in the context of production uh, or, or manufacturing. How does that apply to the R&D, kind of taking a step back? Uh, yes, I think it's very much true on the R&D as well. To me, the best insights come with actually interacting with the data. Uh, so I would not want something that just applies a fixed cutoff for me, for example. We typically go into the dashboard with some very minimal cutoffs applied, and the user is then encouraged to actually start ap applying different cutoffs to their data, sorting the list in different ways and things like that. You can also do a lot of nice drill downs with these tools where you've got a, maybe a master list of hits that's ranked, but that leads you into another part of the dashboard that has more detailed graphs about how that data was obtained and what's underlying those calculations. And so 
to me, the place where I find insights is really through that exploration process. I'm assuming you're you're thinking about things like p-value cutoffs or which data is considered dirty or, or irrelevant or something along those lines. That's right. It would be some filtering of potentially bad data and then typical cutoffs, for example, for RNA-seq, it might be a p-value or it might be a fold change in a differential expression analysis. Or some other QC metric that, that you obtain. Right. Right. You mentioned Excel twice, once in ter- in the context of bringing data together, VLOOKUP, ZLOOKUP, uh, and then it also came up in the idea of visualization, creating those static pie charts or, or line graphs, et cetera. Why do you think Excel became the de facto bioinformatic tool? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, a great software engineering manager once told me that his biggest competition was Excel. <laughs> and... Um, it's a very common tool, and I think it's a great tool. There's nothing wrong with it. It's um, it's familiar to people, and it has a lot of power, so it's been used extensively. Uh, but it is the main the main issues with it, as you said, are having analysis and things in Excel where you can't track it. And it's definitely you know when you're jo- trying to join data or things like that with it, it's very prone to error. So a lot of what these systems can help with is just removing some of the human error, uh, and really that bringing a lot of data together also most people are not going to go that far in excel they'll probably do uh, they may bring their rna seq data in but when you get into things like you want to bring in the phenotypic data or and proteomics data as well that really gets beyond what you can do easily in excel and it becomes very time consuming one thing that that people have mentioned to me is an issue of visibility if you're a bench scientist looking at your specific experiment you're only concerned about that experiment, right? Did my gel work or not? Did my sequencing run fail or did I get good results? Uh, but then as you start sort of traversing up the layers, uh, perhaps a lab manager or a director of a, of a group wants a different level of, of, of insight. I feel sometimes Excel is great for answering the small question, but then as you start rolling up, a VP of research or discovery wouldn't be concerned about the nitty gritty sort of fine, finer details unless there was an issue. They would kind of want to have a top level view. What are your thoughts around uh, some of these commercial tools in terms of creating different layers of dashboards or different levels of, of visibility into projects uh, or across organizations, across groups? So that's a really good point. So yes, we do in fact typically create a different levels of dashboards. So for a typical user, there may be an RNA-seq dashboard where you just get your RNA-seq experiment back and you look at it. Now, there are other people on other teams, as you mentioned, maybe the supervisors uh, or a bioinformatics or data science team like mine, where we want to go in and look at things much more across an entire cycle. So we're looking at how were these things designed and did they really behave as designed? Or we want to really look at multiomics. We want to combine in the proteomics data and get into more complex questions. And so I think it is important for people to realize when they're working with these systems at companies that part of the point is not just to enable yourself, but to also enable these bigger teams. Right. In, in terms of the infrastructure, you mentioned relational databases earlier. Uh, do you think the tools work or behave differently, whether you're using a traditional relational database or something on the cloud like an S3 bucket or, or some schemaless database? Well, I mean, you so you can join file-based things into these systems as well. So you can use it a bit as a super Excel. 
and that's not always bad. I don't necessarily discourage people from doing that. So you can bring in data sources and uh, join things together, and you can then save that dashboard actually with the data embedded in it. So that's still a good approach that we use sometimes, especially for more one-off type analyses. It's more for the more permanent sort of production-ready dashboards that you would want to always have it connected to the database. In terms of metadata, two of the bigger challenges are probably one around incomplete data, uh, and then secondly, around inconsistency of data. So I'm thinking nomenclature, some sort of ontology. Uh, could you speak to that and how that might affect the downstream visualization? Yes, so that is a big issue, and um, the incompleteness is usually can be addressed, again, either by trying to go back to other people or systems and trying to fill in, uh, but it is a common problem. For the consistency of nomenclature, uh, that's again where the databases can come in very handy because part of the nice thing about having this live against the database is that you can update things uh, and, and have them immediately be reflected in the dashboard. So when we have a controlled vocabulary or something that we need to fix, we always try to make sure that that is done. And then that makes it much easier for people to use the dashboard and uh, not have a bunch of different filters that are really the same thing, but are named slightly differently. Right. I guess that's the debate between freeform text and controlled vocabulary. And how do you get more adoption or, or researchers actually inputting the data in the first place. That's right. I, you know, I would prefer to have most things be a controlled vocabulary where possible. Uh, free text is usually more for something like a rationale or a description of the experiment. And often this uh, is being coupled with a limb system or something else where you've got web applications that allow the users to upload the data. And that's where they can contro control some of this vocabulary and have their dropdowns. And that's sort of a requirement to get it in the system. So it comes in that way. I guess if, if there was a biotech or pharma company that's ha that has a lot of legacy data, uh, are there any challenges in pulling old data um, that is probably that probably has a lot of hygiene issues with with newer technologies, newer data that that are being generated. Yes, I mean you definitely need to keep in mind. Uh, for instance, if it is an omics type technology, you're going to have to think about what technology was used at that time, what library kits were used, how, what was the quality of your sequencing center essentially at that time. So those things need to be taken into account. Uh, data may be, need to be normalized across da different data sets. Right. Uh, and then, of course, there's all the metadata tracking. Um, certainly, t typical data scientists are trained to do a lot of data cleaning, data uploading, extract, transform, load operations. Um, so they can certainly do that. But if it's older, you may have trouble pr finding the context of that data. People may have left. Uh, but I think to the extent that you can do it, it's usually a good exercise. So one of the things I've been baffled with is oftentimes I hear from pharma researchers that it's easier to rerun an experiment than it is to go back and find an old experiment or the data from an old experiment. Uh, how, how do you think... Um, how do you think people should approach the integration or, or how do you think bioinformatics can help with the integration and, and making old data both accessible as well as um, relevant in, in, the, in the sense of uh, standardizing it or normalizing it to modern technologies? Well, yes, that's quite often true. And I mean, there are times when we probably would rerun an experiment if there's a modern technology that's going to be better. Uh, we want to get a fresh match data set. 
Um, sometimes we will do the same experiment essentially multiple times too, because you will get slightly different results and that helps give you more confidence about things. Uh, I think for older data, I mean, a lot of it comes down to if, if you can use current bioinformatics tools to assess the quality and if you're pretty comfortable with it, uh, and if you're fairly comfortable with the coverage and things, then you can go ahead and use that. Uh, metadata comes down more to how good is the company tracking uh, their data. And I think that's where this is something companies really need to understand the value of having good LIMS and ELN systems and good systems around that. I guess once you've integrated multi-omic data, how do researchers try to generate insight from those data? What are what are the next steps and how does visualization help with that? Um, well, again, usually there's typically some uh, analysis done. For instance, with RNA-seq, you may do a differential expression pipeline on that data. And then you go in and you have a rank list and you can then look at that. Maybe that profile is also over time. And you can drill in and say, okay, how do I see this over time? And look at those individual genes. And so I think some of that kind of rational looking at lists is, is very valuable and trying to understand the biology. You also want to look at the data a bunch of different ways. You can bring in certainly other techniques can be run either offline and put into the dashboard or some of these tools have things built in, for instance, k-means clustering or use PCA or techniques like that to kind of simplify the data and look at what are the main genes driving each category. So maybe it's disease versus no disease or something like that. And that can also give you another starting point then to drill down and say, okay, are these genes uh, in a common annotation or common category? Do they make sense with what I know about this from the literature and these kind of things? Actually, just talking about the integration layer, um, going back to that, where, where do the data originally exist? Are those all in relational databases that you're then joining together or... What is the starting point? Yes, so typically the, the starting point is you have to build data capture systems, and it comes from a variety of sources. Uh, a lot of, you know, obviously the, the sequencing instruments produce files, the analysis pipelines can write directly into the database, but then you have a lot of things that are coming off of all sorts of different equipment in the lab with, with different ways of doing it. Some of them produce an CSV file or Excel file, so you have to build systems that upload that data. Then there's a lot of a human element, and that's where the web applications and limbs that I mentioned comes in, where if, if people need to enter something in, you've got to make sure there's a facility for them to do that in the right way and capture that. So you have to have teams that are working on the data capture. Um, there's different ways of doing this. It may go into a giant central database, or you may have different applications around uh, your business that have their own database. When that happens, it is very common to then build APIs on top of those, and you have a more central database or data warehouse that consumes that, puts the data together, and that's what's usually consumed by the visualization and by your data science team. So you're not actually moving the data from one repository to another. You're putting an API extraction layer on top to pull the requisite data for those dashboards, and, and that's all done in real time. That's right. Again, there's two different approaches there also. Uh, you could use the APIs to pull that data in and make a copy of it and build a bigger data warehouse, and you could do your visualization on top of that. But it's also possible to have the dashboards connect directly to two or more of the APIs and join the data inside the dashboard, and that's done also. Sure. Okay, so now you have your data from those uh, 
from those disparate data sets or databases or from one central repository. Uh, you have your visualization or your integration tools that create those dashboards. Uh, is, there, is there another layer in terms of the visualization? Are you pulling data from those dashboards into something like D3 and creating custom, custom visualizations or is that sort of the endpoint? Not typically. Uh, that's not what I've done. That's usually the endpoint. Um, but there is also a lot of people like to make D3 visualizations or build their own web pages. Uh, so we're not always using uh, these tools. We're sometimes building our own systems on top or alongside uh, the integration layer as well. How, how would a person, you know, you've gotten to the point of creating these really complex dashboards. How would someone realize that there is an issue with one of the joins and, and how I've pulled data together? It's, it's very hard. I mean, you have to rely on someone kind of looking at it and say, realizing something's out of whack and, and asking about it. That's why I guess one of my big principles is to have myself and my team always be also key users of these dashboards. So we're in there routinely looking at the data as well and making sure it makes sense. And are you using trending or sort of historical data to say, this is my normal range, and now I have data that are not within that range. That's right. That's another really good point where, uh, as I mentioned before, you can not only bring up your data set of interest, but you could bring up all the data sets that you've ever collected. And we do have special dashboards we make for that that are more for like a QC process to see, you know, how has my sequencing center behaved for an entire two years? So we do that as well. So we've talked a lot about the the necessity of integrating data, multiple data sets, uh, that has matured as our understanding of, of disease or disease states has, has matured. Um, and that's been, uh, that's been facilitated by new technologies, new omic technologies in particular, as well as newer IT tools for, for the both integration and visualization. Where do you see this going in the future? Uh, I think this is going to be a, a big area that's going to continue to increase. I think we're going to see just, I mean, there's a tremendous explosion of data happening right now and getting value out of that data is key. Um, we're really entering, uh, you know, an incredible era of breakthroughs in medicine and, and precision medicine and personalized medicine are going to become much more available. And again, I think really you're going to see uh, the value being put on these large data sets by companies and, and the visualization capabilities for that. And I think you're going to start to see the intersection of the machine learning with this more and more. And that's the, the intersection of omics and machine learning is, is really incredible right now. And I think the impact there is going to be tremendous. Do you think there's going to be a point where we have too much data, you know, go into this problem of data deluge? <laughs> yes, uh, we already do in a way. I mean, that's the challenge is we, we say we could always use more data and certainly cost is still an issue and getting enough replication is still actually a very big issue for a lot of the studies. But um, at the same time, it's already very clear we've reached the point where we have lots of data sitting around that we haven't extracted the value from. So we're very much in the middle of this where um, the data is increasing, but the need to get more value out of the data we have is really there. We spoke about the need and necessity of integrating multiple data sets. Uh, 
in, in particular regarding the complexity and, and our understanding of the complexity of disease, disease states, conditions, et cetera, uh, as well as identifying novel targets and, and biomarker discovery. Uh, we also talked about some of the pitfalls and limitations, dangers of not using purpose-built integration tools and visualization tools. Uh, and finally, we, we talked about the future. Uh, do you see, uh, just as a final question, uh, do you envision at some point we'll get to the Mission Impossible dashboards where people are physically interacting and, and you know, just what we perceive currently as science fiction uh, in terms of visualizing data? Yeah, I mean, I think there will be continued advances in those areas. Certainly the way people look at the displays is going to continue to evolve. Um, so, yeah, we'll maybe have the minority report uh, dashboard uh, yeah. where we can minority move, report, move things around. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, we may we may certainly see more of that. Um, there's definitely uh, more VR out there being used. Uh, so I would think people will certainly come up with creative ways to use that as well to improve the visualization. Well, thank you for listening to BioRadio. I'd like to thank Shane for being our guest today, speaking with us about data integration and visualization. To join the conversation, visit our blog, biorad.io, and don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is an original creation of BioRad Laboratories. BioRad is a trademark of BioRad Laboratories Incorporated. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.